Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And our subject is how God sees our lives. Now the Apostle John has seen a great vision of the risen, glorified Lord. And he has been given the substance of this book of Revelation. And at the beginning of it, there appear letters to seven churches of Asia with their varying needs. And we're looking this evening at the content of the message which was to be given to the church at Laodicea. Now it's addressed to a church, a church which had faded, a church which had lost, it would seem, much of its essential communion with God, which had drifted from the pathway. Possibly it had been corrupted by the Gnostic heresy of the day, and maybe the members of that church that stood true had not protested. But anyway, by whatever means, it's slipped away from the true faith. And so these uh, words are directed to such a church. But they equally apply to all individuals. And that is how we shall look at them and take them this evening. They have a much wider application than just to that church, but to every one of us, and particularly those who have never sought and found Christian conversion, found the Lord. And we start back here at verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And I'm going to proceed through these verses not in a complex way, but in a kind of expository manner, because the whole of the message is of vital importance to us and to our eternal souls. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. And Christ announces himself in that way. The Amen. You could translate it the true or the truth because Christ is the true one. He's God, of course. God incarnate who was crucified and who rose from the dead and is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. But he's described it with this word, the Amen. Now, Amen is a word which appears in the Bible in different settings. It can mean, so be it. At the end of a prayer, that's what it means. So be it. It can, in a very allied sense, be, I assure you. When it's put at the beginning of a teaching or statement by someone, I assure you, but it's the most uh, solemn assurance 
You could expand it. I most solemnly assure you. Or so be it at the end of a prayer. It's truth. And he is the truth, Christ. He is the purpose behind this world. Why does God allow the world to go on in all its rebellion against him and its sin and its suffering and the awful things which the human race has brought upon itself because of its fall away from God? Why does God allow it to go on? Only because Christ is at work drawing a countless number of men and women to himself, pardoning and forgiving their sin, transforming their lives, bringing them into communion with himself and taking them to everlasting bliss. And while the role of the saved, the redeemed, is being made up and Christ is at work, the world goes on. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. Here's the truth. It is all in aid of the future eternal heavenly state and the people who will dwell with God through the everlasting ages. These things saith the Amen, the one whose every word is true, the one who will keep the promises of God, the one who makes the whole plan of salvation possible. He is the truth and the Amen. It's a great word when you explore it. These things set the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The translation can be misleading. You could read it and think it means the first one to be created. It certainly doesn't mean that. Beginning here is used in the sense of the origin of the creation of God. He was the one who started it all. He was the author, the alpha, the beginning of everything. It was through Christ. He was the member of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, mysteriously, three distinct persons within the united Godhead. And it was Christ to whom was deputed the task of creating the cosmos. He is the origin, the beginning of the creation of God. And these are the first words that he utters to the church at Laodicea. And it brings us straight away to the point. Verse 15, I know thy works. We're going to be talking about how God sees our lives. I know thy works. He sees into us all, into the deep recesses of the heart. He knows everything about us, our thoughts. It's not enough to say that. He knows every thought that we have ever thought and every thought that we will think. He knows it all from the end to the, from the beginning to the end. And you say, well, how is that possible? It is possible because he is God, and he is infinitely knowing and wise. 
and his capacity for knowledge is endless. It cannot be explored. It cannot be measured. And he knows all things that he knows at one and the same time. And he sees into us. He knows our state, the state of the heart, how contaminated it is, our tendencies, our traits, and he knows every sin, every evil word, thought, and deed. I know thy works. We read in the letter to the Hebrews that all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And they are. And before him, the Saviour, yes, but also the judge of all the earth, all things are known, and nothing at all is hidden. I know thy works. And something here is particularly picked out in verse 15 that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. It applied to the church at Laodicea, but does it apply to us? Let us suppose I'm unsaved, I'm unconverted, I do not know the Lord. Am I in this lukewarm state? It's a terrifying thing. In the lukewarm state, I am comfortable with my condition. I don't need saving. I say to myself, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need to be made anew. I don't need spiritual life. And I'm utterly complacent about it. And I don't mind, and I don't care, and I'm not interested. It's the lukewarm state with regard to spiritual things. I'm not like these, you may say to yourself, I'm not like these aggressive atheists, these militant atheists who want to be attacking God and tearing the Bible apart and trying desperately to find fault. I don't do that. On the other hand, I'm not desperate to find anything either. I'm in this in-between condition. I will spew thee out of my mouth, indifferent to God, careless. What's the reason for it? Well, obviously, I'm satisfied with myself as I am in an unconverted state. I'm rather pleased with myself, perhaps. I don't need any of these things. And then the text goes into the details. Verse 17. Here's the difference between our estimation of ourselves and God's estimation of us. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I have a completely unrealistic view of myself. Usually, if I'm unsaved, that's the state that I'm in. 
I'm rich. Well, maybe I think so materially. Maybe we say to ourselves, we are educated, we are employed, we have a home, we have a family, we are reasonably gifted. Maybe somebody says, I am presentable. Somebody else may say, I, I have a good nature, I have reasonably good character, I am a funny person, someone may say. Oh, we thank God for people with a sense of humour who cheer us up at times. But it may be we're rather proud of these things. I uh, am popular, I am nice, and so on. I don't have needs. I am rich. I'm satisfied with myself. It's actually a fatal condition to be in. Because you don't need the Lord. And you don't need salvation. And you'll never be on the road to heaven. Because you're satisfied with yourself. And then the text goes on. And increased with goods. And that's a little bit different. And especially so in the original Greek. Let's put the emphasis on the increased I'm increased with good. You could put it like this. I've made progress. I've got achievements. I've got accomplishments. I've had results in education, in employment, in career, in home. I've actually accomplished things. It's not merely that I've got this and that. I move forward. I climb the ladder. I get better. I'm going up. I'm especially pleased with myself. And I count my accomplishments and my achievements. And then the text goes, and have need of nothing. Is that our condition? I cannot think of anything I need. Of course, I'd like more money. I'd like more luxuries. I'd like more pleasures, but I can't think of anything I need. If they're not open to me or they're not coming to me, I'm not miserable, I'm all right. And as a person, as a character, and this is fatal, maybe we say, I don't have any needs. I don't need forgiveness. What have I done? I don't need change. A new life. I mentioned these things already. I don't have any needs from God, from the Bible. What can it do for me? The fatal unrealism that we get into. In fact, I've heard it said, you Christians, with your Bible and the message of Christ... Yes, I've heard something about this. And they say, you tell us that human beings are depraved. And human beings are sinful by nature and fallen. And that's a terrible thing to say. And it's not true, it's a lie. And I don't believe it and I won't believe it. It's an insult to speak in those ways. 
Do you think that? Oh, you acknowledge you have a few faults, but depraved? No, no. You can be good enough, a good person. No, says the Bible, no, not one. Not as God sees us. As a phrase used by the Apostle Paul and also elsewhere in the Bible, the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity. Sin is so deep, sin is so profound, and it rules all of us. Do you read biography? Biography of great people. I have to confess, I love biography. And I've read many, many biographies and of people who certainly had earthly accomplishments and great fame, great celebrity, real celebrity. And people acknowledged what they had done for society or for the country or for science and technology or for literature and the arts. But you read about them, not in a slim, little, superficial biography, but in something substantial. And you soon find the flaws and the difficulties. How insecure that great man really was. Or another one, how volatile. Or another one, an absolute uh, hypochondriac so concerned about himself, so concerned about how he came across, and so incredibly vain. And another one, so hypocritical, capable of awful viciousness within his family and cruelty, mental and physical. And you read about people. There's one great man I rather admired for what he'd accomplished and achieved, strides across English history, and then you discover he was an alcoholic and he made the people immediately around him so miserable for most of their lives. The mystery of iniquity. There are great people. There are perfect people. You've never met them. Not when you get to know them. Neither have I. The mystery of iniquity. The pride and the lies and the hostility and the selfishness and the sin which spoils all of us. Yes, we're not 100% evil. We're capable of good. God has seen to that, that the still the capability to love in us and to do some good things, but there's so much which makes us utterly unfit for heaven and for God in all his purity and perfection that makes us offensive to him. And you see the vigor of the language here. I will spew you out of my mouth. So offensive to Almighty God. What a difference between the flattering way we look at ourselves and what God sees when he looks at us. It's just astonishing that he is ready to have such mercy and compassion upon us and to be so kind to us and to save us and forgive us and reconstruct us and begin the long work of making us fit for glory and for heaven.
the wonderful mercy and kindness of God. Here are the words. I go on the second part of verse 17. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The first sense of all these words is physical. It is a description of somebody who in their, and it's used as a picture, in their physical condition is desperate, wretched. It indicates somebody who is in such a broken down, emaciated, weakened, illness-ridden state. You don't realize when you look at yourselves, says God, that in God's sight you are wretched. Your condition is so bad. Well, the picture is of a person, but it pictures our spiritual state. Are you wretched spiritually? I say it gently. Your soul is not functioning. It's virtually dead. It doesn't act. You can't pray. You can't relate to God. He can't hold you back from sin. It can't give you pleasure. You haven't got understanding of spiritual things. Your soul is desperately sick, unconscious even. Wretched, miserable. How does that add to wretched? The Greek term means to be pitted. Oh, but I thought I was to be admired. No, says God, you are to be pitted because you have no heaven and no saviour and you've got to stand and be judged for your own sins and your whole life will turn out to be a waste of time and everything one day will come to an end and you will not have found the Lord and you will not know him. How greatly you are to be pitied, wretched and miserable, that is to be pitied. And then it proceeds in verse 17, poor, Poor, you've never paid homage to God. You don't have any influence with him. You cannot pray and have answers to your prayers. You don't have a friend or a helper in heaven. You're so poor. A poor person has no resources, nothing in the bank, no one to whom he can turn for help. Nothing with which to feed the children and the family. Are we spiritually poor? No resources in heaven. No God to help you. No saviour to uphold you. And blind. You don't see it. You don't see spiritual things. The Bible is mumbo-jumbo. You don't understand it. You have no light and naked. You're not properly clothed. 
You feel the cold. You're subject to the weather and the elements. If you were clothed, you could go outside in all weathers. You could hold your head up and stride about and get about your business. But your clothes are in tatters. Spiritually, this is what it means. You've got no spiritual protection. Every temptation comes into your mind and into your heart and carries you away. Every heretical thought, every slander against God, you believe it, you've no defense against it. And it deepens and strengthens your unbelief and cynicism. You've got no protection, no clothing. You're subject to the devil and his snares and his temptations. Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. How much we need to see these things and come to Christ for help and for all these benefits and blessings for new life. I take you briefly then to verse 18. I counsel thee, says Christ, to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Anoint thine eyes with thyself that thou mayest see. Why does he say buy? That's the last thing we can do. Buy forgiveness? Buy new, pay for new life? We can't. So why does he use the term buy? It's quite clear, of course, right through the New Testament that salvation is free. It has to be a free gift bestowed on us by God when we repent of our sins and believe only in Christ and rely on him and yield our lives to him. So why does he use the term buy? It's a matter of buying without money, but that word buy, does it fit? Is it appropriate? Well, it is. Because when you buy something, you do it carefully. You look at whatever it is you're going to buy. Imagine ancient times, and they're going along in the marketplace, and the tables or whatever they had are laid out with wares. And there's a stall holder or table holder. There they are, one after the other, lined up. And you know what you need, and you've got your money. And you survey the quality, the size, is it what you need, will it suit your purpose? And you buy thoughtfully, and you estimate the value of what you want to purchase. You value it. It's, a, it's an intelligent, conscious act. That's why the word buy is used. Because this has some parallels to finding the Lord. You can only find the Lord 
when you understand what you're getting into, when you understand the way of salvation, God is holy, I am sinful. Christ, who is God, came down from heaven to be a sin-bearer for me, to stand between me and the Father, and he took upon himself the guilt of all my sin. And the Father smote him instead of me, and he has obtained the right to forgive me and to possess me and to make me new. I must understand that, the way of salvation, the atoning death of Christ. I must trust him for that. I must come to him saying, Lord, you are the only saviour. You have died for a sinner like me. I rely on you and I trust you and I don't trust anything in myself. I cannot earn my salvation. My trust is entirely in thee, O Lord. You have to understand it. So buy is a good word. You don't buy without looking or knowing something about what you're buying. It's an intelligent act. Except that when we offer anything at all, Lord, I think I deserve this. I've got these works, some good things I've done. I've got some currency. Can I bring this into the transaction? He will turn me away. You have nothing of value, nothing with which to pay. You must trust in Christ alone that he has suffered for all your sin, that he has done it all and purchased salvation for every sinner who comes to him. So you buy without money, without deserving, without earning. And here it is. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, purified the very best gold, salvation, new life, heaven, eternal life, that thou mayest be rich in your soul and white raiment, pure white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. Laodicea was a marvellous place. I must close. It had many wonders in the ancient world. It had a stadium for athletics that was measured 400 yards in diameter. It had two vast theatres. It had the second largest medical school in the ancient world. It had a great reputation for eye salve, and even that's brought in to the illustration here. It had a cloth-making industry from sheep that produced black cloth. Very interesting that the Lord says, with me you shall have white raiment, new character and purity. There was one thing that Laodicea didn't have. It had a magnificent situation. It was built at a crossroads, two of the greatest trade routes in the region. 
so it was wealthy. But there's something it didn't have. Water. Colossae, not far away, had ice-cold mountain springs. Hierapolis, six miles to the north, had wonderful hot springs. So there was hot, there was cold, and there was Laodicea with nothing. But they were rich and they were resourceful. And they built a great pipe out of stone, a huge, massive construction. And it brought water from cool springs six miles. An amazing accomplishment. But when it got to Laodicea, it was no longer cool. It was tepid. It was brackish. It was stained. It was horrible. But not to the people of Laodicea. They were so proud of it. This tremendous engineering accomplishment. Come to Laodicea for wealth and riches and trade and cloth and sights and water. Oh, said the people from Colossae, it's rubbish. Oh, said the people from Hierapolis, it's horrible. Only in Laodicea did it seem marvelous. That's the bottom of this. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, Christ says to the Laodiceans. I will spew thee out of my mouth. Is it us? So satisfied with ourselves? That God sees us so differently. The reality. How much we need Christ and forgiveness and life. Come to him, dear friends. Put yourself before him. Repent of your sin. Trust in him. And all that he's suffered for a sinner like you. And yield your life to him. And you'll never be the same again. Let's pray. Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all now. Move in every heart. Overcome our natural stubbornness and resistance. Oh Lord, melt us down and show us our need and thy great mercy and love and save us. We ask it in the name of our Saviour, for his sake. Amen.